Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. All right, so we're, we are in actually in Mark chapter 2. Uh, Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man. A guy, uh, he, he's healed somebody with a fever. He's healed a leper. And in chapter 1, verse 28, it says his fame has spread all over the place. And this is in part because of where he started the ministry at a crossroads. So people coming in and out of the town would be hearing these things about Jesus. And the news has spread. So did his resistance. So for every person that was excited about the good news that he came to bring, he keeps having run-ins with Pharisees. So in chapter 2, we're going to get four run-ins with the Pharisees. And in each one, there's something being taught. But in each one, the Pharisees make more and more of a decision that this guy's got to go. And so as we saw with chapter 1, like Mark led off. Remember the very first verse, he led off with an evangel, a Roman message of good news. And so he, he's writing this to Romans and remember, probably one of the things that would give Romans the most open of a heart would be to take some shots at the Pharisees. Because if you were a Roman occupier or a Roman citizen living in this area, these Pharisees would have drove you nuts. They're running around telling everybody what to do and how to do it. And if you're a Roman, you don't follow any of those Jewish things. So the Pharisees probably came off as really annoying. So it's one way, I think, as we look at all of chapter 2, one way to evangelize to people if they're not in the faith or they don't come from a faith tradition is agree on them with the things that are extra to that faith. So when, you, when Mark writes chapter 2 and he writes about these Pharisees, Jesus also had issues with these Pharisees because they were adding things to the law of God. And so it's, in one way, this whole chapter is just like saying to the Romans, like, we don't like the Pharisees either. So, and you'll meet people that'll say, I just don't do religion anymore. I've done it. I grew up there. I've been hurt by it. I don't want anything to do it. And it's an okay response for us to say, yeah, we don't like religion either. Like, honestly, we meet in a basement. Like, we just don't do, we don't have those trappings. And we, we reject them just like Jesus did. Because if it's an addition to the Word of God, if it's not written in the Word, it's, it's just going to be something that causes issues. Even with the good heart that the Pharisees probably had when they did this. So we get to verse 1. And again, so again, the word and, we're coming right off chapter 1. It's a continuous story with Mark. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. And then they came to him being a paralytic, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was so that they had broken through and they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. So we, Mark presents this new situation where people vandalize a house. Verse 2, he's preaching the word. I, I don't think we can miss, even though Mark doesn't include the teachings like Matthew did as much, Mark emphasizes that the teaching of the word was at the core of Jesus' ministry all the time. And I don't think we should miss those things in verse 2. They, immediately they gathered together and there was no room to receive him and he preached the word to them. Nobody's getting healed without hearing the word. 
And Jesus is teaching the word. For them, that would have been the Old Testament. He's pulling it out and he's teaching them Torah. And he's teaching them the law. So that when they encounter the Pharisees, he's actually probably taught them some of these things before they get into it with the Pharisees over it. A little refresher course. Preaching was central to Jesus' ministry, even in the book of Mark. It's a highlight of what he did and how he did things. It's also likely that people showed up for healing because that they had heard about the healings. So Mark presents that his, his fame went all over the place, and, and there could likely be a lot of people there that aren't interested in hearing the word at all. They just want the healing. And this paralytic kind of sounds like that situation. Verse 3, they couldn't get, get near. So it's believed in the first century that those that had issues like paralysis, blindness, leprosy, they had it because they were cursed, because there was some sin in their life. And at some level, that's true because we all have sin in our life, Romans 3.23. We all do. So when there's something that goes with it, you could, you could for all people, identify some sin and then, then associate the two, which the Bible never does, except for with leprosy. There's some connotation there. So this handicap space, that idea that there'd be a spot in the front row for handicapped people, didn't exist in the first century. The idea that handicapped people were to be treated as full human beings didn't exist in the first century. So when there's a crowd around a building and everybody's hearing this teacher teach, people come up with a paralytic, it says they couldn't get through because of the crowd. And that sounds really cruel because it was really cruel. Like they didn't just say, oh, you're handicapped, we'll let you through. You have value as a human and we want to get you where you can hear. That's something that, I mean, every time I see a handicapped space, think of the influence of the Christian church over the last 2,000 years. That idea that we treat handicapped people with value is a Christian idea, not a Jewish idea. Right? So the Jewish traditions had already, and the Roman traditions especially, you treat those people like they are less than. And so this idea that we, I, I just don't think we can overlook the idea. They have to uncover the roof. In the Greek, this is the only use of that phrase because it's a fairly unique situation. It's a compound of two Greek words, apo, to separate something, and stege, which means thatch. So it's to separate the thatch. And so I think this is a tough one to translate in the English because in a Mideastern temperate climate, you would have stairs that would go up to the top of your roof and your roof would have part of it that was plaster, concrete on wood beams, but you'd also have part of it that was just a thatch or just a covering of things. And the reason for that was that you could get things in and out of the house. You could have somebody sleep on your house, which we saw with Elijah and the widow, right? This was a place where you'd put guests. They could just sleep on the roof. And in the Middle East, in a temperate climate, this is possible large parts of the year, that you could just do that. So the idea that they would separate the thatch would mean they would take that part of the roof that was there. In the English, it almost sounds like they destroyed the roof, that this was a destruction of property, that Jesus is somehow blessing the destruction of the house that he's in. And, and, and if you read it that way, it's fairly rude. And Mark hardly hints at that idea. He doesn't even mention the fact that there's destruction here. And I think that's because it's simply apostege. They just moved the thatch over to the side. Now that would still, if you're allergic to thatch, if you're standing underneath that, you'd still have this little rain shower of dried grasses falling on you, which might be annoying. But then it says when they had broken through, and the exoriso is the word there, it means to pluck. So they plucked the thatch and they let him down. There's no real damage to the house here. Um, and, and as they let him down, this shows a lot of faith in Jesus because it's easier to let somebody down than it is to bring them back up. So there's a trust here. There's a, a background with Jesus healing. So it's not an irrational faith to trust that he can do healing. 
And so as they're doing this, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, sons, your sins are forgiven you. It's interesting he doesn't heal the paralytic right off the bat. In fact, he doesn't heal the paralytic until he's challenged by the Pharisees. But the thing that he needs is the healing of his sins. And so it's interesting that he's preaching the word and then he gives forgiveness and that happens before any healing begins to happen in this situation. Jesus saw their faith. Again, we're going to see this in Mark over and over and over again. It's a, it's a core idea. And Hebrews really pounded on this too. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is something you can see. It's an action based on experience. It's the evidence of things hoped for. And the, the, it, it, it's when we move forward, Jesus saw their faith. He didn't sense their faith. He didn't hear about their faith. He saw it. And he saw it in that they climbed on a roof and let a body down through a roof because they had faith that he could do something that they had seen him do before. So there's this idea that faith being a visible action, if we believe something's true, then we act accordingly. Honestly, if you can hear something and believe it and then not act accordingly, then you don't have faith in what you've heard. Faith is when you act on those things that you believe or, or that you have seen. Faith isn't a disposition or an attitude. It's a lifestyle that you act out. If it's true, then you act accordingly. Faith is the substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of the things not seen. Here Jesus saw the substance and the evidence of their faith. Despite the health issues, Jesus puts the sin issue first because that's the right order to it. You have to suddenly see that the spiritual issues are more important than the physical issues. So he treats it that way. Sons, your sins are forgiven you. I love the fact that he says son. That doesn't mean they're biologically connected means Jesus seeing, is seeing a new and a different kind of family. And he emphasizes that as we go through the book. And then forgiving sins is a claim to Godhood. It's interesting how God and how through all of the Gospels, that connection to Godhood is one that's played out with a lot of diplomacy. And I think part of that is Jesus knew when his time was for the cross. So he had to be somewhat careful with how he said and did things. If you knew the word and if you were seeking the Lord, you'd see the connection. And here's the connection. If you wrong me and do something wrong and then you come and say, I'm really sorry, I actually have the power to forgive because I'm the one that was wronged. If you go to my wife and apologize to her, maybe, but she should probably tell you, maybe you should go apologize to Sean. He's the one you did something wrong to. Or vice versa. It's more likely that I did something wrong to you. This is true of sins. If the one who was wronged is the one who can forgive, all sin is not just an infraction or a trespass against the person. It's also a trespass against God himself. So when someone says, I, I forgive you all of your sins, the only one who can do that is the one who was wronged. And so when Jesus does this, it's a direct claim to Godhood, but it's artfully spoken. Chapter 1, he had authority over fever, demons, leprosy. Now in this verse, verse 5, he's claiming deity over an authority over sin itself. And to do that, just like leprosy, he's claiming a position that only God has in the Old Testament. So if you believe the Old Testament and you read it, you're either furious with Jesus for making this claim because it's blasphemy, or you actually think that maybe Jesus is the Messiah, and in that case, this isn't blasphemy at all, it's truth. And you're getting excited because he's starting to speak truth all of a sudden. Then verse 6 comes along. Some of the scribes were sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They start thinking those thoughts. 
That's a good question. It's a bonus points for the Pharisees. These scribes are sharp. If only God forgives sins because he's the one that's wronged by it, then after 400 years of silence, Jesus is claiming to be speaking for God. That hasn't happened since Malachi. So this is a big moment. Maybe they've uh, inflated their idea of the Old Testament a little bit, like it could never happen again, like they were in a period of science that was going to go longer than 400 years. Who knows? But Jesus in this room and looking at Jesus, what they thought Messiah would look like, these scribes are just off track on. Because Jesus is just this guy in a room that told somebody to, that their sins were forgiven. And I think that's something that happens often, and I think it still happens today. We go to church on a Sunday, or we go to an event, or we go to a concert, and we think this is going to be something that Jesus is going to bless, and we expect it to look one way. And sometimes the blessings of God don't look like fireworks. They come much softer and much quieter. Tonight at the Bible study, we're going to be studying Elijah, and he gets the still small voice, and God's teaching him that lesson. It's not the earthquake. It's not the raw exhibition of power. It's this simple, quiet thing that happens. And, and then you got to like do a double check. Like, was that a miracle? Did that just happen? And with this paralytic laying in the bed, he hasn't been healed yet. Healed yet. Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven you. So he's still laying in the bed. And nothing, there wasn't a force or a movement. There was no low bass note in a movie, right? <laughs> nothing like that. It's just he says, your sins are forgiven you. And he's just a guy in a building with little speckles of thatch dust still sprinkling down through the light. It's normal. And God works that way a lot. I think Satan likes the show and likes the elaboration. Satan loves the attention. God just likes that blessing to come through. Is that Hendrix? I thought it was Lisa for a second. Was, she looks a lot. She looks wide away. Verse eight. But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, "Why do you reason about these things in your hearts?" Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up in your bed and walk. But that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. For immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I love this story because... If you want to prove that you're God, here's three easy steps to prove that you're God, right? Verse 8, he perceived in, the, in his spirit what they were thinking. So go up to somebody and perceive in your spirit and know exactly what they're thinking in their head, and you have a, number one, pretty good indication that you're God. Jesus pulls this off and he reads their mind, like nothing short of that. If somebody did that to me, I would have to question who I'm talking to. Like, how did you know what I was thinking? And Okay, but then you could explain that away. Well, Sean, you're pretty easy to read. Like, we all know what you're thinking, right? Then verse 9, which is easier to say? Point out the empty words. It's really easy to say, your sins are forgiven you. It's not so easy to say, get up and walk. So make a contrast that God can only do one of... So God can forgive sins and God can make one walk, but one can be faked and one cannot. Which is it easier to say? Well, they're both easy to say which is easier to actually have the power and the authority to make happen. We don't see when somebody's sins are forgiven. It's a very no-firework kind of thing. But we can see when a paralytic gets up and walks. So when Jesus does this, it's almost like he's responding to the Pharisees 
to show them who he is. And then number three, you know, first read their mind, then point out an empty versus powerful thing to do, and then actually do it. Verse 12, he arose. Heal somebody with a lifetime of paralysis, and that's a great way to prove that you're God to people. Right? Point out this is something only God can do, and then do it. So now I hope none of you have the ambition to prove that you're God to anyone, but if you want to do it, this is how you do it. And what Jesus is doing here should be an, a conclusive moment for everybody around there. But notice the hearts of the scribes don't change. The miracle doesn't change their heart. And, and to, that's, an, that's there. In verse 8, we see again Mark using the phrase immediately. Again, he uses it over and over and over. All of this is happening so fast, I think people in the room could barely process it. Right? Because he's just teaching the word. Half of them are probably half awake because he's teaching the Bible. He's going through it. And they're like, okay, I got to stay with it. What's the next verse? He's doing this full-on Bible study. Paralytic comes down. That would wake everybody up. And then this thing happens with the Pharisees, but it's only a couple exchanges. It happens so fast. And all of a sudden, this guy's standing up. While, so verse 10, but that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth. That phrase, the Son of Man, this one confused me forever. What does it mean to be the Son of Man? In, throughout the Old Testament, when we see the Son of, it can either be a biological connection, or often it can simply mean the essence of somebody. So if I'm the son of somebody, it, it might be my great-great-great-great-grandfather because I'm the son of Levi, I'm a Levite. I have the essence of a Levite. It also can count out the inheritance of something. I'm the inheritor of this tribe, this person. So it's not always a biological thing. Uh, Matthew 28, Mark 14, Luke 25, John 11, all four Gospels use the phrase son of man like over and over and over again. And it's typical that when we see it, it's Jesus referring to himself. But when other people refer to Jesus, they call him the Son of God. Mark 8, Matthew 8, Mark 3, Luke 6, John 10, all four Gospels have both phrases. So which is it, Son of Man or Son of God? And theologically, it's both. It's when Jesus refers to himself, I think as a deity, he's saying, I'm the Son of Man. I've taken the inheritance and the form of mankind. I am the essence of mankind. And on the other side, you got the Son of God, which people see as humans, they see him, and he's something more than human. He has the essence and the inheritance of God himself. He's the Son of God. And we need to recognize the Son of God for what he is. So to have this essence of someone, Jesus has the essence of all mankind. I want to pause on that for just a second, because this is a big concept for Mark as we go through it. The Old Testament has a number of uses of the phrase Son of Man, Oftentimes, the Son of Man, when a human refers to themselves, and I'm looking at Job chapter 25. In Job 25, he uses that phrase in terms of himself, but listen to how he uses it. How much less is a worm and the Son of Man, which is a worm? So is Job calling Jesus a worm when he says that? No. He's referring to himself as, I am the essence of man and I'm just a worm. Mankind's so low. We're just dust. We don't control when we get our breath, and we don't control when we lose our breath. We're just dust. It all comes and it all goes. Ezekiel uses the phrase son of man like every eight lines. <laughs> like Read Ezekiel, he uses it like tons. But he's always using it in reference to himself. If I am the representative of humanity before God right now, Ezekiel would say, then mankind doesn't have much going for it. So when Daniel uses it, he's talking about the end times, and we see a shift with the prophets. And they use the Son of Man, they put the article in front of it, the Son of Man. There will come a time when the Son of Man will come. 
So in the first century, when they're looking back, there is sons of men, which are pretty much all the characters of the Old Testament. But then you get to the prophets and they refer to specifically Daniel, the son of man. I want to, I'm going to read that one of those passages from Daniel chapter 7 because this is messianic. And the, the, in the, when Jesus uses his phrase with himself, it would have been the same situation as saying, I have the power to forgive sins. Because when he says he's the son of man, he's doing it in a messianic sense. He uses the article, I'm the son of man. Does that make sense? Okay, here's Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. That's not worm-like, right? It's the opposite. And came from to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now we went through Matthew, which is all about kingdom. You can see where the use of son of man is a big deal for Mark. But Mark doesn't assume that the reader understands any of that. All he's showing the reader right now is that that phrase gets used and it and it's because he represents all of mankind, even the Romans. So if you're a Gentile reading the book of Mark, he's, he's the perfect human. Daniel 8.17 also uses it like Ezekiel, but he doesn't use it like a proper noun. So in one prophet book, Daniel, he uses the phrase son of man both ways. He knows the difference and so do the listeners, the Jewish listeners to Mark. And when this situation happens, um, it would have been very clear what Jesus was saying. So it's, well, Jesus never called himself God. Yeah, he did. And he called, himself, he called himself the Messiah. So when he uses this phrase and he uses it with the article, he's using it just like Daniel used it. And this is why the scribes got so mad. right? They wouldn't have gotten mad if he was saying, well, I'm just a lowly worm. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying quite the opposite. Matthew emphasizes all that kingship. Um, Mark emphasizes it using the dominion over all things. We see the use of Son of Man 78 times in the Gospels. So let there be no confusion about what Jesus is calling himself here. He's calling himself the Messiah every time he uses that, that phrase. Daniel notes that the judge of all of humanity is the Son of Man. So he designates the role and what the person's going to do. He is the singular being or the king of glory also associated in the prophets. So why wouldn't Jesus just call himself the king of glory? Why would he use that phrase? Because it was important for God to communicate to humanity that he had become like humanity. It's important for humanity to recognize that God himself was with us. That's why we say he's the son of God. That's why he says he's the son of man. And it's a, it's a, I think it's a beautiful way to communicate a very complex idea. And it's just thrown in there with just, you know, in the middle of a guy standing up off a mat, Jesus just throws that phrase in there. And it's the phrase that would have got them upset, not the healing. It's, who is this guy? It says, all were amazed and glorified. That's correct. And I love that they glorified God. Jesus didn't necessarily bring glory to himself. That will happen later. But when they see Jesus do these things, they all praise the Lord. And he's modeling for us what this kind of situation looks like. Wonders can happen. Praise God because we're not necessarily the one to focus on. They'd never seen anything like this. That's the key. Jesus never asked them for blind faith in what he was going to say. He showed them power and then asked them to believe that he had power. I just, to me, that's so 
much different than any presentation of the philosophers. He demonstrated, and then he asked for people to follow him. There's never, a, there's never an issue here around that. The question is always around the heart. So the scribes, did they repent? No, they just hate him more. Miracles don't change your mind. The wonderful healing power in the name of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin, and he does both of them, and sadly they deny that they even saw anything other than a ritual being broken. In the next stories, we get a sense that they're following Jesus around, they're watching Jesus, they're looking for flaws in this guy because they're so stirred in their heart with hatred and bitterness. They're what I call the aha people. Have you ever met these people? They're just looking for, some, for you as a believer to do something they can point at and go, aha, 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 see, you're just like me. You got all these problems. Uh, on the internet, we call this trolling, right? They're just going around waiting for that mistake, and then they jump on it and pounce on it. And then you have to ask yourself, like, don't you people have a life? Like, don't these scribes have something better to do, like scribing? But no, they just follow Jesus around. So verse 13, we get to the second story. Then he went out again by sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. How do you demonstrate authority? You go up to a Roman tax collector, and you ask for it. Now, the Romans would recruit people who knew the town, that wanted to, so they would offer him a ridiculous amount of money. And this is a nice little fact that they really do well with in The Chosen, but like, They'd come up and say, hey, do you want to make triple what everybody else is making? You get to be our tax collector. Tax collectors would make a bid, um, and they would get the Roman post if they could make that bid. So the Romans would get four or five applicants, say, how much money can you bring in from this region? They would make a bid saying, I can bring in this amount of money. Anything they brought in on top of that money would be theirs to keep. So the Romans would obviously take the highest bidder, and then, you know, so if you're an honest tax collector, you collect what you said you would collect for the Romans, and then you take a modest income from yourself. But that virtually never happened. The whole point was to make as much money as you could because you had Roman soldiers you could send out to get those taxes. So you'd squeeze it as hard as you could to get as much as you could off people. And this was the Roman Empire that lasted 800 years. It's a really good way to raise money. So the Romans did this. This was the core of their infrastructure, and they would always fund locals to do it. You can imagine if your cousin took this job and then turned around and squeezed you for money, you would hate that cousin. They were a traitor. They betrayed you. This was rotten. They were not allowed, so there were traditions around this sort of thing. There was a whole group of people called zealots that were targeting and trying to kill these people. Um, so... Matthew gives up quite a bit. And we saw four fishermen in chapter 1 come to follow Jesus. Here we see a tax collector. And frankly, I think this is a different kind of thing. The tax collector leaves this bid. And if you walk off your post, the Romans are never going to give you another bid. If this thing with Jesus doesn't work, I can always go back to my dad's boat and go back to fishing. You never go back to this tax collector position. When Matthew walks away, he, walk, he has no way to go back. He's burnt the bridges. Moreover, he's never going to find a place in that community again because he's still going to be reviled even if he tries to go back. This whole thing with Jesus doesn't work out. Matthew has nowhere to go. So I like Matthew as a character for that reason. He's left the safety and security of the Roman guards. He's left the money of the job. 
He's taken the rejection and hatred will be there, and he's putting himself out where all the zealots can take a shot if they want to and take him out. Levi means joined to, means of the tribe of Levi, obviously. But in the Hebrew, in the root Hebrew, it means joined to. So it's interesting that his name gets changed to Matthew later on, which means gift of Jehovah. He's a blessing. And that title, if you're a tax collector, I just think how refreshing and cleansing when Jesus gives him a new name, that gift of Jehovah would be the name he picks. I just think it's a wonderful name. So here we see the old name get used a lot like in chapter 1, verse 16. We saw the old name of Simon getting used. Until Jesus does his work on their life, they have an old name. And so he comes up to Levi. He doesn't come up to Matthew because the work of Jesus hasn't been complete on this guy's life yet. He comes up to the tax office. It's a very public um, rejection of the Roman Empire. Um, this story to a Roman reader would have stood out remarkably because why would you ever leave this job? It's the best job you can get as a local. But it does show fellowship with Romans and it does show fellowship with tax collectors. Jesus, it, this is an important recruitment for the reader if you're a Roman or a Gentile reading the book of Mark because Matthew cares as much about bringing people that were affiliated with Rome into his discipleship as he does about just bringing Jews. It's not just a Jewish thing. The audience here, I think, um, we saw the scribes getting engaged. This one is, would be upsetting to everybody who's Jewish <laughs> because it's a tax collector. But if, you're, if your audience is Roman, this agrees with the perceived hypocrisy of the Jewish people. This story would resonate with people. Yeah, this is how those Jews are. And so it's, it's opening a door for people there. And second, it shows Jesus' willingness to fellowship with a Roman sympathizer. So Jesus cares about Romans too. And it's just going to crack that armor a little bit if you're reading there. Mark leaves out um, that following Jesus meant to, to, to get up and put him to host a party. But that's what happens in verse 15. In other Gospels, we see that. Matthew leaves the tax office and he hosts a party. This is one of my issues with the chosen. They present Matthew as a social outcast, not just because of his job, but because of a mental cognitive delay. What we see in verse 15 really does not mesh with that. Verse 15, now it happened as he was dining at Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples for there were many and they followed him. Do you hear how it says many twice? Matthew actually had a lot of friends because when you take this job as a tax collector, your only network of friends are other tax collectors. So they all know each other and they spend time together. So when he leaves his posts and he opens a party, lots of people show up to the party, right? He's not a complete, so it's not just him and his dog, right? In the, in the Bible, we see a much more popular Matthew that does connect with people and does have relationships. So he invites everybody over at his house for dinner. It says many tax collectors and sinners. That's how Jewish people would refer to the Romans. Tons of people that were part of that group. It shows that Matthew had some weight with the Romans. Like he knew people and had friends that were part of the Roman infrastructure. Um, then it says in verse 16, and when the scribes, now we add the Pharisees in, now when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? So, <laughs> The word, the Pharisees here, this is the first time we see it in the, in the Gospel of Mark. 
Um, it's like in the first story, the scribes saw the paralytic getting raised, and then they ran to get the Pharisees. Pharisees were little religious police officers. They're the guys running around the church telling everybody how to live. And they would run around the whole community and tell everybody what to do and how to do it. They had hundreds of little rules they had added to the Old Testament word. And they would enforce those rules. So how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? I think we should note that's a derogatory question. It makes a ton of assumptions about who's in that building with Jesus. And that's the reason they see it through that eyes and their hostility is growing. Their indignation turns now into accusation at Jesus. It's not just like, who does he say he is? Now it's, well, look at who he's eating with. So they're critiquing how Jesus chooses to do things. It's a form of judgmentalism that you gauge and associate one's asso their holiness with their status. That you start looking at people as super holy, extra holy, minimal holy, not so holy, and sinner people. And as soon as we do this, and I think we're all tempted to do this, we're all tempted to look at each other and make judgments about each other. And it's one of the things that can lead into a really horrible situation when we start doing that. God simply looks at people that are starting their journey and people that have been doing it for a long time. There's maturity and there's immaturity. But this idea that people are better or worse than each other based on how I perceive them, that's a dangerous mental status. And it's so dangerous that these people couldn't see Jesus when he was right in front of their face. You can even go to church and not meet Jesus because all you're doing is looking at other people instead of getting your eyes on the king. Verse 17, when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Look, who are those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's an interesting concept. So wait a second. What if I'm a, what if I'm a pretty righteous person? Then Jesus didn't come for me? No, that's not what it's saying at all. He's responding to people that are attacking him with a derogatory question. And so he plays their game a little bit. And says, I didn't come for the righteous, I came for the sinners. So he, he splits the world up into that sort of thing. He doesn't get into tax collectors, he doesn't care what people do. He just goes right to that sinner title. Jesus compares himself to a doctor. A doctor, it would imply, has a solution or a, a response. If a doctor is going to heal somebody, they know the recipe for healing. They know the treatment. So when Jesus is a doctor in regards to sinners, it, it, it's a strong implication that he knows the solution to sin. He knows the treatment because that's what he's there to do is to administer a treatment that actually heals and forgives sins. Well, that's interesting because in the Jewish tradition, there is no escaping sin. There is simply covering sin. Every sacrifice you give, you got to give it again a week later. right? Every feast you go to is going to happen again next year. There's no permanent solution to sin. But what if, when Jesus says this, he's introducing this idea that there is actually healing from sin. You can get over it. Well, that's crazy. So it builds on the idea that he can forgive and that he has a prescribed solution for the sin too. He's going to call people as he called the first disciples. We've seen examples of that. He says, follow me, and they follow him. So when he says, I've come to call people, we've already seen in the book of Mark that he's doing those things. He calls them to repentance. Again, we see the Greek word metanoia. It means transformation or change. Same thing that happens to a caterpillar when they turn into a butterfly. That thing going on inside the little duber thingy, that's metanoia. Complete change. Same being, different insides. So it's a reversal, a turning point. 
John the Baptist called people to repentance in chapter 1, verse 4. Here Jesus is saying the exact same thing because John prepared the way for that message. Verse 18, the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, they were fasting. And when they came to him and said, why do the disciples of John the Baptist fast, but your disciples do not fast? I imagine this is happening at the same dinner party, right? Because they're sitting there eating and having a great time, and you got these people coming in. What's crazy here is the disciples of John the Baptist are now siding with the Pharisees. You see that? Some of the disciples of John the Baptist are already eating with Jesus because John the Baptist has told them to go follow Jesus at the baptism. So the ones that aren't following Jesus that were followers of John the Baptist, it's like John the Baptist's following split. Some of them followed Jesus and some of them just couldn't do it. They couldn't make the transition. So this is kind of an interesting thing that at this point their hearts are hardening to be like the disciples. You would think of any two groups of people in the world, the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, would not be bedfellows on anything. But here they are when it comes to critiquing Jesus' disciples. Notice that they're not critiquing Jesus now, they're critiquing the disciples of Jesus. So if they can't get the strong person, go after the people that are just learning. And this is typical. People that are actively pursuing holiness in their life and this is a danger, I think, for everybody, every one of us. We pursue Jesus and we have we found ways that help us to get to holiness. The temptation is to then turn that on their people and, and implicitly think that if they're not doing what you're doing, they're not as holy and they're missing something. And it's such a danger. They pose it as a question. Again, that's a, it's a fake question. It's an accusing question. Fasting is good. There's nothing wrong with fasting. It's taught in the Old Testament. Jesus' disciples will do it later after he's gone. Pharisees were known to fast religiously. They did it twice a week. They, would, they made it a law for themselves. If you were a Pharisee, you had to fast twice a week. The only exception were the feasts. So today, like there's a danger on this idea of fasting is that just because it comes up here, and I think because it comes up here, well, we as Christians, we just don't fast. And that's not what this is saying at all. Fasting is a great practice. Many people do it to connect with the Lord, get closer to the Lord. There's different ways to fast. There's different types of fasting. We could get all into fasting, but I don't think that's Mark's intent on this chapter. We'll get into it later. The problem here is that they're legalistic about their fasting. Well, that's great. It helps you to fast twice a week. Why are you then thinking somebody else's disciples have to do it too? Right? And this is true of any religious behavior that's positive. Anything we do that's like good for the kingdom of God, when we make it into a rule for ourselves and then ascribe it to other people, we just became legalists in the same tone as this. This is why the followers of John the Baptist and the Pharisees agree on something. They've started to think it's the works and the actions that make the difference, not the heart behind them. So this is, don't miss the new kind of judgmentalism here. This isn't just gauging people at different levels. This is gauging people against yourself. They have to be doing what I do to be holy. So instead of joining fellowship, like wouldn't it have been great if the, the followers of John the Baptist came in and started feasting with the crew? Like Matthew's got plenty of money. He can feed y'all, right? In fact, he's throwing a party to get rid of all his money, like, right? There's plenty of food at this party. Wouldn't it be great if the scribes just came in and started fellowshipping and eating? But no, they got to come in and on day one, they got to look around the room and say, you're not doing the right things. I can't be part of your fellowship. And it's so sad when you see that because you think, oh, you're so grumpy. You'd be so blessed by this fellowship if you just had a cupcake. Like, you'd be in great shape. 
right? And, and in joining in in the fellowship, they would have been so blessed, but they can't be blessed because they just are judging the lack of fervor in other people. And it's really sad, and it still happens. And it breaks my heart every time I see it. It should break all of our hearts. Oh, you're missing out. There's great people to spend time with here. Maybe we'll get holier later on, but for now we're just following Jesus. And we love doing that. And there's a blessing in doing that. Trusting in Jesus to provide and lead can appear like it's sloppy to a legalist. Well, you guys aren't intentional about this, and you, you got jokes on your screen, and you're, you don't start on time, and what's going on? Your chairs don't match, all that sort of thing. And people can come in and say, well, you didn't spend any time talking about Calvinism, and I just can't go to a church where they don't talk about Calvinism. And you don't have tags for your Sunday school? And people can come in and just, they miss everything that has to do with the heart because all they're looking at is the stuff. And it's so sad. Trust in Jesus to provide and lead us isn't sloppy. It's an intentional decision that we've made to follow Jesus, and we just take it seriously. We don't have to make those decisions about what to do as a group here, there, and everywhere because we're just going to follow Jesus, and we're going to stick to it. Then Jesus said to them, this is how Jesus responds to this kind of legalism. Verse 19, And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom's with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them and they will fast in those days. Okay, don't miss the fact. He's once again calling himself God and he's doing it in a language that they would understand. It's the only exception to the pharisaical twice a week fasting rule is feasts. And, and one of those primary feasts is a wedding. So what he's using is he's using their law against them. And saying, but when there's a bridegroom, there's a wedding happening, you can do it. And there are, their response is obviously, well, there's no wedding happening here. When Jesus is saying, well, yes, there is a wedding happening. The I'm the bridegroom, and this is the bride. And he's making this first reference we see to the church being a kind of family or a bride of all of human history. And he being the bridegroom means he's marrying humanity. So in the first story, he said who has the power to forgive sins. In the second story, he calls himself the Son of Man. In the third story, he calls himself the Bridegroom. Boom, boom, boom. Every one of these stories, he gets challenged. He gives them another claim to Godhood. He's given them everything they need to hate his guts. And it says, the days will come. This is an early hint that Jesus is going to leave for a season, which we're in right now. Bridegroom's not with us right now. So fasting's back on. It's back on the menu, or the opposite of that. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth. This is still the same response. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and a tear is made even worse. But no one puts new wine into old wineskins or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled. And the wineskins are ruined, but the new wine must be put into new wineskins. Think about that for a second. All those rules about fasting that they're bringing to the table, here's the argument. All your rules are like an old wineskin. They don't fit what I have to offer. Well, what are the rules about? What's the old wineskin? The old wineskin used to hold the wine of God. But now he's presenting something that's a new holder for the wine of, the wine of God. Like God's covenant is going to change. Think of what he's saying to them with that argument. Now you can get into all the, the mechanics of wineskins and how they were. We don't have a lot of these today. You take a piece of leather and you would put the wine in the leather, the grape juice, and then you'd let it rot or ferment. 
and then as it fermented, it would grow or it would expand. So you had to, that leather had to be nice and supple and new so it would expand with the wine. But then that wine skin, once used, you couldn't use it on a new batch of wine because it would just crack and break. It, it couldn't stretch twice. So when God makes a new covenant, he's going to give us some ways to do things, and we're going to grow into those. And this is why over the periods of time, God has changed the covenant with humanity to keep it fresh and to keep it new. Verse 21 introduces this idea of the wineskin, but again, there's this idea that God did something in the Old Testament, and now he's about to do something new. Again, this would aggravate the Pharisees. The followers of John the Baptist would be fine with that because he's already been preaching that message. Something new is coming. The Messiah is coming. So when they're critiquing him on this sort of legalism, it's a, it's a confounding thing because they should have learned from John to watch out for it. John told them to follow Jesus. So a little faith in Jesus, you should be ready to stretch or change or grow a little bit. For new followers of Jesus, get ready for a new Holy Spirit which might make you grow and shift and change in ways that stretch you, like a new wineskin. No one takes the old traditions and then enforces them when God's trying to do a new thing. It's a bad idea. So after three run-ins now, we get a sense of indignation from these followers. We get a sense that they're just chasing him, going, ah, 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 look, they're eating. Like, what a weird thing to accuse people of. They're eating food, right? Well, okay, this is what we do three times a day. Like, get over it, people. But they're, they're, they're trying really hard. So there are scribes in verse 6, scribes and Pharisees in verse 16, John the Baptist followers and the Pharisees in verse 18. They all want something different than what God's given them. And God's given them this guy that just joyfully eats food, heals people. Then we're going to really tick them off in the last story. Uh, before we get to the next part, the last part of the chapter... I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 23 because I want you to know the actual law that is supposedly being broken here. Here's the actual law. Deuteronomy 23, verse 25. When you comest into the standing corn of your neighbor, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not move a sicker in their neighbor's corn. In other words, you can have a snack, but don't give up, get out the harvest tools and start stealing crops. So it, it, I think this is a really cool law. Travelers in a Jewish world, it's called gleaning. You could go and as you're just traveling, you could grab some grains of corn by the side of the road and just eat some corn while you're walking. And I think it's a real blessing. Uh, farmers were commanded to leave the corners of their fields open so that poor people could come and glean food for themselves. And the idea is if you're harvesting with your hand, you're harvesting enough for yourself. If you bring the sickle, you're, you're just stealing crops. But the idea is that, that people that were poor didn't have food. No matter where you went in Israel, you could just grab a bite. It would be like having granola bars sitting on every street corner. And people just left them there. If you weren't hungry, you didn't eat them. But if you were, you could have a granola bar and you could keep moving. Probably tasted like granola bars too. So it's perfectly legal. Deuteronomy 23.25 allows this to happen. The problem isn't the law. The problem is the day on which they do it. So here's verse 23 back in our chapter. Um, now it happened as he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, that he went, that, that as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, the reason I read that ahead of time is that's a lie. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath. So they're, they're not telling the truth, but they're telling the truth in this way. It's one of the laws of the Mishnah. 
So it's one of those made up laws that they've put into place that you can't do. So they're, they're saying it's against the rabbinical rules and Jesus isn't arguing over the rabbinical rules. He's going straight back to the Deuteronomy passage. The problem isn't what they're doing, it's when they're doing it. It's, a, it's on the Sabbath. So they had tons of rules around the Sabbath. You can't reap, you can't thresh the, the husk off the grain, you can't grind the grain into a powder, and you definitely can't prepare it for eating food. You're supposed to do all your preparation beforehand. In, in, it's interesting that in most world religions, they venerate a particular task or an obligation of a task. You have to do something in most religions. Judaism venerates a time, Sabbath. And on Sabbath, you can't do certain things. And so I think it's interesting how this becomes something that we forget what a big deal Sabbath was to the Jewish people. And in the same thing as fasting, like they made such a big deal about fasting. And in our culture, we almost don't make a big enough deal about fasting. Like we've lost one of the spiritual disciplines. We've forgotten it. And Sabbath is almost the same thing. They made such a big deal about Sabbath and in our culture, we've kind of done the opposite. We've forgotten how important Sabbath is. And there's a balance somewhere in between that's not legalist, but it's also not abandoning the tools God's given us. But Sabbath is a spiritual tool. Ta Sabbath in the Hebrew means to rest or cease. It's actually a word in the Assyrian and the Ar Armenian. Most languages in the Middle East have the word Sabbath in it. And it means the same thing, which shows the influence of this word. It was such a big deal to the Jewish people. It was a day to rest your heart. And we've turned it into things like, I mean, I've even seen people are like, well, I don't do this on the Sabbath and I don't do this. I, just this morning I was saying, Michael, I don't want to talk business on the Sabbath. Like we set these rules for ourselves because we want our heart to be at ease. So, but, but those rules shouldn't be a thing of legalism. They should be a thing that, in, that ensure and protect a period of time where we can just relax we can let the rest of our life go for one day and we can just be at peace with our friends and family. That's it. That's Sabbath. And it's sacred and it's holy. And I think in our culture, we forget how holy it is and how important it is. God commands us to do it. He says, remember the Sabbath and actually keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your foreigner residing in your towns nor your puppy dog. Like nobody has to do work on the Sabbath. For in the six days that the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. If God blesses one out of seven days a week, who are we to not make that holy? You see what I'm saying? I'm just trying to raise your level up so you can kind of empathize with these Pharisees. This is a big deal to them. Mark doesn't really explain all of this because I think if he's writing to a Roman audience, they would see these rules about the Sabbath as simply ridiculous because they are. Because the Pharisees made their own little rules and then enforced them on everybody around them, including they tried to do it with the Romans. Like imagine how frustrating it would be to be a Roman praetor and know that these people don't work seven days a week. You cannot get the Jewish people to work on the seventh day. That had to be so aggravating. Because every other empire you conquer, you can work them seven days a week. But the Jews, they would rather be killed than work on the Sabbath. And yet in America, sometimes we forget we don't even care about that. Eh, whatever, we'll just move it around. Whatever's convenient for us. So there's no sacrifice. And we err on the other side of that. 
The Romans were willing to give their life over these things. So when the rabbinical laws had 39 different kinds of work that were not allowed on the Sabbath, they, when they pick this grain and eat it, they break four of them, right, all at once. And they mix up the human laws with the Old Testament actual law. Jesus keeps it straight. They couldn't even tie knots on the Sabbath or loosen a knot. How do you get dressed and undressed if you can't tie knots or loosen knots? That's an interesting problem that they would have the whole culture design around, right? If you wanted to get something from the well, you couldn't tie a knot to it, but you could tie your girdle. So they would go to wells, and on Sabbath, they would tie a girdle to the rope and then a girdle to the bucket, and then they would lower it down and pull water up because that was keeping the rule But this. So you get a sense of Roman culture just looking for ways around the law all the time because the laws got silly. You couldn't spit into the dirt on the Sabbath because that, be, that could be sowing your seeds. So there were rules around spitting, right? This is why it's a big deal when Jesus spits in the dirt and puts the soil on the eyes, right? You got to check what day of the week that's on. I, I haven't looked it up, but you couldn't walk more than 1,999 1, paces. Now we have step counters today. I can sit in a chair all day and hit 1,000 steps. Right? So to not be able to walk 2,000 steps, and, and it's arbitrary. Like, where did they come up with this number? Why 1,999? I'm thinking some Pharisees sat around and walked around the house and counted their steps all day and said, if all you're doing is hanging around your house, you, 2,000 steps is about all you need. But they're so busy with legalism, they forget that, and maybe we already have, Sabbath is a day for our hearts to find rest, peace. So if my heart's finding peace on the Sabbath and there's nothing that gets in the way of that, I should see that God loves me enough to bless me once a week with a day where I just don't have to worry about it. My career will be fine. My family will be fine because I'm hanging out with them. Everything works better because of that. Jesus never breaks the Sabbath. And I think that's important. Sometimes we, I think today we forget that in the church. Jesus never broke the Sabbath. There's no record of him breaking it. He did teach his disciples and he... On the Sabbath, he did go to synagogue on the Sabbath. He did eat and feast on the Sabbath. He did things the Pharisees didn't like, but he did keep the law of the Sabbath, and he taught his disciples to do the same. He heals on the Sabbath because there's no law against that in the Word of God. Only the Pharisees had an issue with that. They eat and, and they glean from the fields because there's no law against that. And we often confuse what humans say we have to or don't have to do with what the Old Testament actually says on major issues that break people. And we've had conversations about this, but it, the Christian church today has done the same thing. And the way we treat sin, the way we treat sinners, all of it, we have to go back to God's word as to how we're supposed to treat those things versus the traditions of how we treat those things. Verse 25. I like that Jesus is still trying to teach the Pharisees, right? He's going to give up on this at some point, but right, he's still gracefully trying to just show them this. And he says to them, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, and he and, and he and those with him? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for priests, and gave to some that were with him. Jesus actually brings up an actual infraction. Right? This is something that actually was a breaking in the law, but look at how it gets handled. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. When David ate the showbread, he broke the law. But there's no accusation from God about that because he was starving and they needed food. 
And the whole point of Sabbath, what Jesus is trying to correctly teach them, is let's look at what the Word actually says about Sabbath. God never holds this against David. God has a way of telling David when he screws up or sins. This is not one of David's sins. God never addresses it with him. Because David correctly understands that Sabbath is supposed to be a time of rest for your heart. And if you're starving, you cannot rest. Because all you're thinking about is your stomach. So it's a time to feast. It's a time to renew. Jesus is still trying to teach him, but he uses this phrase. And I only picked up on this phrase when I went to grad school. Because you'd have two academics like arguing at a conference. And at one point when one of the academics, it's no longer a friendly conversation, when one of the academics says, haven't you read so-and-so? Like that's totally belittling. Like you claim that you're an expert in this field, but you clearly haven't read so-and-so. When you say that in academic worlds, that's just absolute fighting words. And the whole room that knows that will kind of go quiet and be like, oh, did they just say that? They just accused him of not being well-read? You can't do that. So what Jesus says to the Pharisees and the followers of John the Baptist that are pretty serious about the Word of God, when he says, haven't you read what David did? He's questioning their academic level. And I just, I think it's funny because Mark is kind of a fighting man's book. And so from verse 1, we saw Mark picking a fight and getting, you know, the eyebrow raised. But when Jesus talks like this to the Pharisees, he's not trying to make buddies with them. He's pushing them back a little bit. You guys are overstepping your bounds, and I'm going to just push you back a little bit. Haven't you read David? Don't you know what David says? Don't you realize there's one of your heroes that broke the Sabbath worse than we did? And he fed all his men with the actual showbread from the tabernacle? I'm just eating grains from the field. That's legal. But what would you do if I came into the temple and ate the showbread? 1 Samuel 21 is where that story is, if you want to go back and, and, and read it. Jesus is showing them that there's a spirit of the law and a nature of God that they're not understanding. That God is not a legalist. He has rules and paradigms for us to follow, but he also understands mercy and grace. He understands when those things are there. This is something that I think a legalist can either start to ascribe that to other people or in shame feel guilty because they keep breaking laws they think they should keep for themselves. It's a horrible way to live, right? I'm, I'm never getting it right. I'm always screwing it up. Well, wake up tomorrow and do it right. God's not going to beat you up forever over those things. Your sins are forgotten. Move on. Time to get up. Get back into the rhythm. Human needs by far surpass any biblical rules that are there to help us with ascribing ourselves to holiness. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Four encounters, four claims to divinity, and this one's the strongest, right? So Jesus doesn't say, I am God directly, but he does say, he has said that he's the, the Son of Man, and now he's saying the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. We, I'm going to unpack that, and then we'll wrap up for today. Um, but first, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man. God invented it. God designed it. Um, and without the heart, this isn't supposed to be a human ritual. There's no benefit to Sabbath if your heart doesn't find rest on that day. There's just none. We give a sacrifice to God on the Sabbath, which should be wonderful, right? Even if we sing badly, when we worship, we give something up, like our pride, right? When we show up to church, we give up our time. 
When you give your offerings, and by the way, we don't collect an offering here. We just got a love box sitting there. But when you do that, you're giving something up to God. And, and in those things, God's told us there's a blessing. We go from being hard-hearted and clinging to things like our pride and our time and our resources to just letting them go. And there's a blessing in doing that. Hosea 6.6, 6, God desires mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You can't give those offerings because you're weary and tired and broke. God doesn't, ex don't make that a legalistic thing for you. Sabbath is supposed to be for us. It's not a jail cell that we're imprisoned by. It's the light shining through the window of the jail we're already in. Right? It's the glimpse of freedom that we get once a week as we live our lives in something that's much more dismal. The opposite's true too. The Sabbath can be routinely, routinely ignored and minimized and dismissed by people. In fact, in our society, it's absolutely dismissed. Right? There used to be, and I, this is making me an old guy, used to be a day if you wanted to go shopping on Sunday, you couldn't because nobody was open. So you had to deal with it. It was like a cultural Sabbath that we all took. We live in a culture today, y'all. Sabbath is a choice that we get to make. If I want to go shopping, I can go shopping on a Sunday. So now Sabbath has to be a decision that I make. It's not made for me anymore. God commanded us to keep the Sabbath. He blessed it. He made it holy, and we're supposed to follow it. One danger is the Pharisees overdoing that legalism. The other danger is our culture, which underdoes that legalism, that we don't keep it holy and sacred and separate. So we forget the purpose. We disregard a holy God and a gift that he gave us and we minimize the role of what he put in our lives and in doing that we rob ourselves. Every seven days we remember the Sabbath because God made it. Every seven days we cease. We, we set apart time and God's fine with that because he receives that as a sacrifice and a blessing. Isn't that amazing? But there's no fireworks with it. It's just simple. It's just a person in a room with other people. The balance is something our flesh just can't find. I think you don't really enjoy Sabbath until you become a believer and you're following the Lord. Because before you're a believer, Sabbath is either something you have to do because your parents or your social pressure makes you do it, or it's something that you do because you, you, it, you like doing it. Well, that's where your social network is. That's where you get a time off from taking care of your kids, right? So in the flesh, it's either something you get or it's something you're obligated to. In the spirit, it's quite different. In the spirit, it's just rest. It's just peace. And you sit around and you take a moment. If you're an introvert, you just listen to everybody chatting over lunch and hanging out, and you're like, oh, this is a get-to. But in the spirit, it's devotion. It's a gift. Lord, I want to give you my time. I want to give it freely. I don't want to cling to it. Even if there's a Vikes game, I'm going to let it go becomes the simplest way to worship God, yet the most abandoned way to worship God. I want to do so much for the kingdom. Then why are you missing church every week? If you want to do so much for the kingdom, do the simple devotion that he asked you for. Keep it sick. Keep it holy. Keep it secret. Keep it safe. That's precious. Treat it that way. You caught that, didn't you, Sherry? Smallest unit of service we can possibly give to God, yet the most abandoned act of service we give to God in our culture. It's crazy how that works. Satan loves that. He, he disequips the believers before they've even started. Just show up and be blessed. And then do it again every seven days. Show up and be blessed. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
He uses the title to claim the role that only God has because who made the Sabbath? So when he says he's the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath, who is he saying that he is? God. There's no other way to hear that. For any human being to say that, it's total blasphemy. you got to end this guy, maybe on a cross. Like, you got to end him publicly because you don't get to say that. Nobody gets to claim to be God for the Jewish people. You don't get to do that at all. But for Jesus, he just said it. He just dropped that in the room. And it's like, oh, they thought they were getting him on eating kernels of grain or gleaning on this. And then he hands them total blasphemy. Or it's truth. One of the, he's making them make a choice about who he is. It's not about his disciples and what they're eating anymore. You see how quickly he changed this conversation? This is about who you think Jesus is. I think that's a great evangelism tool. People want to get us into these hot-button issues. Oh, what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And what do you think of this? Ah, who's Jesus? Jesus is the king in your life. What would Jesus say about that? Like, I'm not going to get into it with you because I don't matter. Jesus matters. So important. Pharisees try to get him to eat something or not eat something. They get mad at him when he eats. They get mad at him when he, he's out walking in the fields. And he gives them a deity statement on a silver platter. He's called himself the Son of Man back in verse 10. And now he just called himself the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the maker of the Sabbath. He's the king of it. He's in charge of it. He owns it. Next chapter is going to start with the word and again. Like Mark's just stringing this all together. And it's, a, like it's one of those books that you should just read in one sitting because it just gets, it, it from, the, from the Pharisees' perspective, it just gets worse and worse and worse and more cringeworthy to the point that they have to kill this guy. But from a Christian's perspective, he's just laying it out and bringing the truth and, and he doesn't care what they think. There's a boldness here that helps us see the character of Peter a little bit as Mark's recording how he taught. So he's going to go straight to the synagogue and heal again, right? After doing all these other things. So instead of following Jesus, they revile him, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, and they want to destroy this guy, right? So we see a rising spirit of battle in the book of Mark. Two sides to this force of wills. And I'm putting it like it's equal, but it's not. It's Jesus, God of the universe, versus these little specks. And it, they're just going to get rolled over with a resurrection. And it's going to be so overwhelming that I have a feeling when you listen to Mark teach, he'd present it like this, and then he would say, you have to choose Jesus or you're just like these little peons. And this is why thousands of people came to belief when they heard Peter talk, because this is how he presented it. Um, I love that the people that think they're serving God become the destroyers. And biblically, who are the destroyers? The thief does not come except to steal, kill, and destroy. And I've come that they might have eternal life, that they might have life more abundantly. There is life or there is peddly little destruction people. And chapter 2 just sets this up so well. What do you pick? Do you choose to live or do you choose to get worked up about those stupid little litmus tests? So next time somebody comes to visit our body and they're like, are you guys open theists or closed theists? Just point them to life. How about Jesus Christ? How about we just start with that? And as we are in the body and we do talk about deep theological issues, we do get in there. It's not accidental that we put them to the side until we get to know people. 
because the relationship is where it starts. The heart is where it starts. And that's where we want to be with people, where we want to meet people. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for Mark and Peter, how they, they recorded these things. Lord, we thank you that every word of it's good for our teaching. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction. Lord, may we just continue to move our hearts. Lord, may you mold us into spiritual battle warriors, ready to go. Lord, may we know where to have those battles, when to have those battles. May we show restraint in them. But Lord, may we always be ready to give a defense of the God that we serve and the God that we love. Lord, may we recognize and know your power. With each of these interactions with small people, you, you keep manifesting authority and power. Um, Lord, may we know that when we serve a living God that your power goes with us too. So Lord, may you just encourage each person in this room today. May you bless them. May your spirit be on them. Lord, whether their lives are at a high point or a low point, may you just show them your path through all of it. Lord, may we respond to you. May we not fall back on traditions or legalism, um, but we, may we also recognize and honor those things you have given us and to do it with a seriousness and a purpose. Lord, may we commit to things and may our yeses be yeses. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.